I apologize for the loud bell. I did not know if you would hear me over the fans with a soft, mellow bell. Anyway, our AV team is not here today, all of him. And uh, so, uh, we're trying to go live on Facebook this morning. And I just want to tell everyone on Facebook, if it doesn't work, oh, you can't see me. <laughs> If it doesn't work when I get home, I'll just do it again for you. Um, but I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, just be honest. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. I just want to read this to you. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. And he told them a parable. Wednesday night in our Lexio Divina meeting, this was the first verse that was read. And as soon as it was read, I knew I was going to share it this morning. Because it touched what has been on my mind and on my heart for the past five or six months. Jesus gave people what they needed. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, healing to the crippled and the lepers. He gave forgiveness and, and love to the sinner and the lost. And to everyone, he gave parables. So some people got healings, everyone got a parable. In fact, Mark says, uh, after he quotes several of Jesus' parables, that with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything, that is, he gave them the, the message and meaning of the parable. Jesus told stories. And he used parables to introduce people to the kingdom of God. Uh, in John's gospel, we don't see very many parables. But in John's gospel, John records Jesus as using hard sayings. One time the crowd said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Who can digest it? Who can make sense of it? And he does this repeatedly through John's gospel, so people are constantly misunderstanding him, are not knowing how to interpret what he's saying. And he's doing this intentionally. Why did Jesus use these obscure ways to deliver his message. Well, he was telling people, giving people information that was outside of their everyday experience. And they had no way to understand what Jesus was actually describing because they did not even have the, the correct patterns of thinking 
to comprehend it. Look, uh, if, if Einstein were here today, and maybe he is in spirit, uh, and, and he said, space is curved. And we asked, well, how can you prove that space is curved? He might rub his chin and say, well, you're going to have to spend several years studying mathematics and then physics, and eventually you'll get to the truth of what I'm saying, and that's the best I can do. And if we don't know the language of mathematics and physics, we'll never really understand how he gets to this statement, space is curved. These people had to learn a new way to think. And the parables and the hard sayings disrupt our normal patterns of logic and analysis and making sense of things by what we already know. If you know what a ball is, it's not too difficult to, to go from that, to extrapolate from that, a tennis ball, a golf ball, a basketball, or even the globe of our planet or other planets in our solar system. But it takes a basic foundation of fundamentals to move from there to higher levels. And so with the parables and the hard sayings, Jesus is giving people some challenges to help them come to that new way of thinking. There's something that I'd like you to know about me. Uh, now this is not going to be uh, a serious confession, I'll never do that. Um, but, but I have friends that I've known for years and they do not get me. From now on you'll be able to get me, okay? If we were to trace my spiritual journey over the last 50 years, well, it would be scribbling all over the map. Wow, he's over here, he's over there, where is he going now? And right off the edge of the earth. And, um, and, and I get that. I've devoured lots of Bible, lots of Bible commentaries, you don't need to know how much. Uh, lots of theology, naturally, that's my job, right? Um, I've also studied philosophy a little bit. Uh, and physics, enough to know I don't know anything about physics. Uh, psychology has interested me a great deal, and neuroscience especially the most recent studies in human consciousness, the, the theories of how we are conscious organisms. Besides all of the rational stuff, I have revisited the charismatic experience uh, several times. I started there when I was a child, um, got filled with the Holy Ghost at 11 years old, uh, 
kind of moved away from the Pentecostal experience, but when the vineyard sprouted, or just before the vineyard movement sprouted, I returned to the charismatic movement as, as it was taught by John Wimber and as, as it was practiced in his church. And I can't say that I'm still there, but I can't say I've completely let go of it either. Okay, so see, um, Chuck is always changing his mind. He's always chasing after the latest fad. He's always this, all of, you know, always running around crazy all over the map. But all my exploration has been driven by one central passion this entire time. I want to have a real and continuous awareness of God. And I picked that up from my dad's ministry uh, somehow. Uh, well, I mean, you know, it wasn't that hard. Uh, it wasn't like the obscure teaching of Jesus. <laughs> it was more, you know, simple. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I've wanted to learn, or be taught, or figure out, is a continual consciousness of God's presence always a gift, and only certain gifted people have it, or is it an innate capacity of the human brain that can be developed, that anyone if they worked at it, could develop a greater sense of God's presence and a more continuous sense of God's presence. Now, there's a really shallow way of going about this, and, and it's just by the affirmation, I believe God's with me all the time. And, and I believe that, too. I, I believe in the omnipresence of God. Or like Homer Simpson said, God can do anything. He's omnivorous. <laughs> um, well, he is a consuming fire. But I've often thought about a footnote in the Old Testament. It's just a footnote. Saul, before he's king, is running around the hillsides looking for his father's runaway donkeys. And uh, he runs out of options, runs out of money, and his sidekick says, well, let's find a seer who maybe can divine for us where the donkeys are. Let's find a seer. And here's the footnote. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go see the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Now, if you want to know what a seer looks like, read the stories of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings. These guys are amazing. They just knew things that they saw more than any human eyes could see. 
And in a classic story regarding that, Elisha is in a city that's surrounded by the Syrian army, and his his sidekick gets up in the morning, sees the army, and says, "We're done for." And Elisha says, "Don't worry. There's more on our side than on their side." And then he prays, "God, open his eyes." And his servant's eyes are open, and he sees chariots of fire and horses of fire surrounding the army. And, and that whole story has to do with seeing and being blinded and then having one's eyes open. Their eyes were open. They saw. Around the same time, there was a community that the Bible refers to as the sons of the prophets. Now, it doesn't mean that they were literally sons of prophets. It's not like being a preacher's kid. Um, but rather, son means having the nature of, or sharing an identity with. And, and, and it looks like they gathered together, lived in some kind of cloistered environment, and worked on developing the capacity to see and to hear from God. Now we don't read about them very much beyond this period of history. And I think it's possible that because they represented a professional class, and we, I'm trained to be a prophet, that they ended up being taken over by the royal families and became servants to the royal families, telling them what they wanted to hear. Affirm what we've already decided on. No one does that today, right? I mean, I don't know any Christians who say, I prayed and prayed, and what do you know? God told me to do exactly what I wanted to do. How handy. Okay. Um, so my, my question for 40 plus years, 50 years almost, uh, was captured really well by Arthur Deakman, who says, is there any evidence supporting the idea that human beings can develop in themselves a new form of perception, one that is latent, but requires special conditions for its development? Are we possessed at birth of neuronal circuits with a developmental potential for the kind of direct, intuitive knowing that mystics say is possible? Can any human do this? Can that potential be revived by specific exercises that would make special demands on the organism? That's been my question. And it has to do specifically with consciousness of God's presence. That is convincing. I know it's not going to convince my rational mind. There will always be objections and, and, uh, and questions there. But I know that I can have experiences that are deeper than my rational mind can go. I think it was Pascal who said, 
love has reasons that reason knows not of. And here he was, a philosopher and mathematician who realized that there are things that the mind cannot comprehend that the heart could feel. There has been a recent trend among some theologians and Christian writers, and I have to say that the three people I have in mind, the four actually, are, are people who I respect for the, the breadth of their Christian faith and, and service and, uh, and their love for God and devotion to the Word of God. But the trend has been to adopt a material, a materialist view of the human person. That the human being is a biological organism, that's all. There's no spirit. There's the soul, there's the life force, but no spirit. And there are at least two who have been convinced of this by neuroscience. That neuroscience can explain the human personality on the basis of activity in the brain alone. So here's a person who has this type of personality and suddenly it changes. Well, no need to look for any mystical reason. Let's look at the brain and see what's happened there. We might find a tumor or a, a stroke or something else that has affected a person's speech or their mannerisms or even their personality. So if the whole person can be explained in terms of neural activity in the brain, then there's no need to say, well, the true self is spirit, and it's the spirit that communicates through us. Arthur Diekman observed the same thing among psychologists, and it's interesting because he wasn't necessarily a man of faith at all. However, he says, Western psychotherapy, in basing itself almost exclusively on the worldview of scientific materialism, has impoverished its model of human consciousness and lost the meaning and significance of human life. In, in basing its, its model, its understanding of humans on scientific material, this is what the scientists are telling us. He says that we've, we've lost the meaning of human life. If you ask the scientist, what's the meaning of life? The scientist says, that doesn't come under the purview of science. Science doesn't have answers for questions like that. In fact, some scientists will say it's a foolish question to ask because there is no purpose. We try to project a purpose onto the universe, onto our lives, but there's no such thing. Science knows of no such thing. It's just all these random things. My grandson Caleb the other day, this is like two weeks ago now, he just broke my heart. He watches all these YouTube videos, and some of them are, are science videos, very interested in the universe. And he tells me about our universe. And he says, Dad, our grandpa, there's this star 
He tells me all about the star. And he said, compared to it, our Earth is like that small. The little finger is making that little small space. Well, the other day he says, I don't know why anyone needs to believe in God. And I go, what? What did you just say? Um, and I had to be careful, you know, like, not to like, overreact to that. He's just eight years old, and, you know, his mind is just responding to what he's seen. But, you know, I, I get it. And I wonder about the theologians who, who have listened to neuroscientists and done away with the spirit. How come they, they don't go the whole distance and say, well, we have scientists who are telling us there's no need for God, that we can explain the existence of the universe without, without that hypothesis. The biblical worldview is supernatural. You know, and our faith is based on scripture. We draw our understanding of ourselves, of our planet, of our universe, in the light of scripture. And it gives us a larger view of our universe and a larger view of the human person. It gives us a larger view of you. Again, Dinkman says, it is possible that the conclusions of scientific materialism are wrong. From time to time, we sense a larger reality than the one science provides, a subtle perception pointing to a better, meaningful existence. Sometimes we have this intuition that my life does have a purpose and a meaning and that interactions with other humans are significant and that the, the forward movement of humankind is significant. Sometimes we get a glimpse of that larger universe, that larger reality. Our normal methods of research, research in science, of study and education, cannot give us access to this larger view of reality. It can only tell us about what is tangible, what is seen, you know, the, the laws of physics, the objects and their relationship to each other. See, the education we get from scripture the real education of Jesus' parables and hard sayings, it's not like learning math or history. Paul argued that God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of mankind's dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. He talks about feeling our way. He's talking to philosophers when he says this, to Epicurean philosophers in Athens, you know, like the, the center of philosophy. And he says, look, God has set up humankind 
in this configuration to get us groping for him. Because that's the best we can do. The philosophers did not give us the God of Scripture and the God or gods that they theorized <coughs> were, as, as uh, Pascal said, the God of the philosophers and the theologians. The God that's talked about, a God that's discussed, but not by any means, God in the fullness of his being that no words of philosophy or theology could fully capture. He's always going to transcend what we know about him. We need to develop a different kind of perception in order to be conscious of God's presence here and now. It's not enough to say, I believe it. I believe in it is great. But do you know it? And do you have the perception that yes, he is here now? Um, I'm going to read something without permission. Uh, it, well, I, I'm, not, I don't ask, I'm not asking for your permission for anything. I'm just <laughs> spilling it all out there. But someone sent me an email after our first service back together. Remember, it was a communion service. And I, I wanted to ask her, and she's not here today, so this is what she gets. Um, but I wanted to ask her if it's okay if I read this, so I'm not going to tell you it was, but she's, it was a really cool email, and she said, I don't know if it was just a gift from God yesterday, or if it was experienced more collectively, but I felt a sense of transcendence in the air. Whatever it was, I think it speaks in part to the time you're investing in what you bring to us and the genuineness you offer, your sacrifice done in pain. And of course, whatever it means in the kingdom of God, reality, for us to gather again. She had the sense of transcendence. Great. Would you give this to Sue Halfley, please? <laughs> <laughs> But don't tell her I read it. <laughs> we need new eyes that see, new ears that hear. We need a new perception of God. And God provides us with guides who already have that different perception. Uh, a friend of mine got a hold of me a couple weeks ago, said, can we meet together? And we met for coffee. And he said, um, I've, I've watched all of those videos of you and Father Romulo, who God provided to me because he had perception I lacked. And uh, this friend of mine asked, how did you meet him anyway? And do you know anyone else like him? In other words, he's on that same journey. He wants to perceive more, but he realizes that he needs the instruction, the guidance of a spiritual teacher. Not someone who has all kinds of knowledge about this, 
someone who actually sees and hears. Chuck Craft is a very rational theologian and anthropologist. I love the man. I once heard him give a lecture on listening to God's spirit, and he emphasized that it required a shift in our normal way of thinking. Of course, how do you do that? We only have one way of thinking that we know about, you know, the rational, logical. There's imagination. He's not talking about imagination. And so I asked him how we could make that shift from the rational to the non-rational. Not irrational, that would be psychosis, but from the rational to the non-rational. It doesn't have to make sense to me for me to experience it, you know, to be there in it. And he gave two answers. He said that a credible guide can assist you in the process. Uh, I, I read something, oh dear, it was on Facebook, about the Grand Canyon of Orange County. And there's a ranger that gives tours of the Grand Canyon of Orange County. I realized that if I went with her into the wilderness where she leaves, I'd want her to be there. Because she knows her way around. And she probably knows where the rattlesnakes are. And, you know, she, at least she, you know, have an eye out, for, uh, uh, an educated eye out. I'd want to go with her because she knows, because she's been there. Right? And it's the same thing. A credible guide is someone who's already living with that awareness of God. So that was his first answer. Credible guide. And then he says, analogy can be useful. Well, Jesus used parables and riddles and metaphors and paradox and hard sayings in creating analogies and also in frustrating our, our literal mind so that we could be pushed into this other way of thinking. Kenneth Leach, who's written an excellent book called Soul Friend, and it's all about having that soul friend who can guide and teach and so on, said, an essential feature of mystical teaching is the process of illumination by metaphor. That is, a way of knowing based upon an intuitive grasp of situations, an openness to the myths and symbols of experience. The spiritual guide speaks the language of myth and metaphor. Is that helps. I might not know exactly what it is. The moment comes and I can feel what it is. In the beginning of 1988, uh, it was January 1, I'm beginning to read the Bible all the way through again. And I, I wrote a prayer in the beginning of my journal. I'm not going to give you the whole thing, but I said, Heavenly Father, when I asked you for a credible guide, you spoke to me through Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And I think it is reassuring to know that the Holy Spirit is your guide. The Holy Spirit will use people, trust him to do that, but 
But the Holy Spirit is the one who writes the curriculum for your spiritual journey and yours alone and it won't look like anyone else's. It is as unique as you. God's Spirit is the teacher and the guide who brings us along. And this is the promise of Jesus. I'm going away, but the Spirit will be here to teach you. God also appointed teachers in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I, I read a post, and you know, I, I just don't, you know, I, I get fired up sometimes. I just want to respond, and uh, I've learned it's a waste of time. But this, someone was criticizing Phil Yancey, and the, uh, Phil Yancey has been around forever. He's a great guy. Uh, I've met him a couple times, and and I love and appreciate and respect. He has a different way of of looking at Christians and what goes on in the church, and some people don't like that. So. Um, the post said, Phil Yancey is teaching us, blah, blah, blah. And this one response was, he's not teaching us anything. I get all my teaching from the Bible. It's so pious. It's just, wow, <laughs> there's a really pious guy. But the irony of that is he's saying, I get all my teaching from the Bible, and the Bible says, God's given us humans that are teachers. <clears throat> so, you know, uh, you're not really getting your teaching from the Bible. You're just saying that to end an argument or to take a, you know, the upper level of an argument and it doesn't work, it collapses. You know, I am going to write him. <laughs> <laughs> but Ephesians, in Ephesians Paul says that Jesus has given us shepherds and teachers and some people believe that those two words are to be hyphenated, he's given us shepherd teachers or pastoral teachers, and what would that be? That would be not only this guy today who's doing this, it'd be the person who sits down with you and listens to you, and with you, listens together to the Holy Spirit, and the questions he wants to ask you about your walk with God, and the sort of answers that he might be indicating to you. That's the shepherd teacher. What I have in mind for Sunday mornings, from now until the end of the millennium, is a primer in things unseen. Paul says, while well, we look at the things unseen, well, how can you look at unseen things, right? It's a paradox. A primer in unseen things, and Paul, will be our teacher. And don't groan. If anyone lived continuously in the presence of Jesus, it was Paul. I think to fully understand Paul, we have to go back to his initial encounter with Jesus. And he assumes something dynamic like that has happened for every believer. And on the basis of that, everything he says Almost everything he says makes sense. This is a beginner's course because Paul will provide us in the book of 1 Corinthians a foundation. We can learn the basics and then at least have a starting point. What we can 
hope to gain from Paul as our shepherd teacher, taking us through the basics? Well, to awaken us to everything we've missed up until now and, and why we've missed it. If we never see beyond our material world and our lives in the material world, we will be brainwashed by it and obsessed with it. Now, how can we not be? If we think this is it, then grab all you can on your way through. And Jesus said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? It is this more that is the larger dimension that we have missed. And that's what Paul is going to bring into focus for us. Life is more than what sustains us. The, the body is more than the appearance of this biological organism. Now, when we set out on this path, well, Paul might reject us at first. This happens with spiritual teachers. It's not unusual at all for someone to go, let's say, to a monk and say, I want you to direct my spiritual life. And the monk saying, I'm sorry, but this is not for you. Or, you won't be able to do it. Or, I'm sorry, you're not qualified. Or, you're not strong enough. You're not determined enough. Or, you're not sincere enough. You can't do it. And so the new disciple may argue at first, no, just Give me a chance. That's all I'm asking. Just give me a chance. And the, the director says, no, I won't. And so the student goes off and tries to do it on his or her own and fails. And in time, returns to the teacher and says, you were right. I cannot do this. It's not for me. And the teacher says, now you're ready, I will teach you. Sometimes we just have to come to that point and say, I don't get it, I can't do it, you know, I'm not cut out for it, other people can, not me. And that's, that brings hope. If you give up on all of the ways of thinking that brought you to where you are today, then you're ready now to think differently. There's hope. So Joshua stands before the people of Israel and he says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of our fathers beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites who are up ahead of us or the Lord. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, a jealous God. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And he's telling them that they can't. He's doing what lots of spiritual teachers do. They, they say no at first. You can't. Because they, they want them to see their inability and to count the cost and, and to realize that they can't just go forward from here, they have to start. 
A shepherd teacher enables us to see what helps and hinders. Here's what's going on in my life and it's helping me. Here's what's going on in my life and it's holding me back. Arthur Diekman said, most people bring to meditation an acquisitive, acquisitive that's trying to acquire something, an acquisitive self-centered orientation. That is the cultural norm. This is gonna help me to relax better, it's gonna lower my blood pressure, you know, uh, I'm gonna become spiritual. According to the mystical literature, such an attitude determines the outcome of meditation. For this reason, the instructions that accompany the classical descriptions of meditation deal first with the necessity of purifying the heart, developing a selfless orientation before aspiring to special powers. And, and where does Jesus begin in the Sermon on the Mount? With the, with the um, Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. And the purifying of the heart, you know, is this whole process. Uh, our guide will help us question our assumptions and our motivations. What am I doing here? Why am I here? What do I expect? Jesus says, you have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you, and he, he gets people to question their doctrines, their, their theological beliefs that they've been taught. Because he wants to give them something they haven't heard before. The spiritual teacher helps us to see the limitations of the rational mind and overcome them. A spiritual teacher is somewhere where we want to be. They're already looking through those new eyes and listening with those new ears. Um, at least two steps ahead of us. They don't have to be on the summit at the mountain. They just need to be on a plateau above where we are. Our guide can hear our questions, our objections and concerns, and respond with the wisdom of that larger realm, that larger dimension. In other words, not give us the, the kind of answers that we want to hear or expect to hear or could guess we would hear, but answers that, like, like the answers of Jesus. Have you noticed how seldom he answers, he gives a straight answer to a question? Now those answers may not be satisfying rationally, but they'll be the right answers. They'll be what we need. The spiritual teacher will help us discover our spirit, our aware self, more on that later. It will help us to awaken to God in whom we live and move and have our being. It will help us to see how our, our spirit is a bridge between this material world in which we are embodied to that dimension of God. And the spiritual teacher will help us discern our most effective ways to pray. Because what works for me may not work for you. What works for you may not work for me. Um, according to Kenneth Leach, St. Teresa, you know St. Teresa, uh, uh, Villa. St. Teresa is critical of those directors who forbid or disapprove of reading during the life of prayer and says that she herself found it impossible for 18 years to pray without the help of a book. 
If you found that it's helpful to read first and to get informed or inspired by a book or passage, by a devotional, by literature that instructs us on how to pray and sit in contemplative prayer, then by all means, if that works for you. Someone else is going to listen to a guided meditation on YouTube. That will work for that person. The spiritual teacher will challenge, console, and lead us to our own discoveries. And that's what happens when we finally get the parable. We'll talk about that. Okay, we're going to follow Paul through 1 Corinthians. It won't be a Bible study, um, but we're going to be looking for specific insights into the life of the Spirit. Many evangelical Christians today are discouraged, are disappointed, are frustrated, and they're saying, it just doesn't work. What I've been told, the simplistic message of evangelicalism has not worked for me. I'm not in God the place where I want to be. And they're longing for that larger dimension of God. They're looking for a faith uh, that Jim would say produces lovers. Lovers of God, lovers of others, lovers of the gifts of God and the planet God has given us. So I want you to imagine Jesus with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is so frustrated by Jesus because Jesus is talking nonsense to him. And yet he knows that he's a, a teacher sent from God. And he's trying to hang in there with Jesus. And, and I want you to picture Jesus and Nicodemus because we might get that way with Paul. And we might get frustrated. I don't get what you're saying at all. And he says, that's okay. You're not going to get it here. This can't be taught. It has to be caught. And when we start to catch it, we'll, we'll know the difference. God will provide us with what we need. He will provide you with what you need to take the next steps. We have to stay with it. We have to stay with it until our breakthrough, until our miracle. Would you please stand? And now may the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. I can't wait. We're going to start next week. It's exciting.